Jen, Jen, I'm so proud of us. We picked the right book this week. We picked the right book. I have not been able to read all week. Oh, and so I mean, it's, I think there's all of us, right? It's so hard. And I picked this up to reread and read it in one sitting. I fell right into it. And then halfway through, I texted Susan and I was like, Susan, <laughs> I'm rereading Nobody's Baby But Mine right now. And I just had to text you to tell you that you are a genius. And <laughs> this book is like, as wonderful as it was in when I read it the first time. Yeah. I mean, it's better now. It's better because I'm older. <laughs> like, it's better because I get it more. <laughs> I was telling Kate that I read this book the first time when I was 10 years younger than they were. And now I'm 10 years older. So that is also really wild. Yeah, it really changes things. Anyway, uh, welcome everybody to Faded Mates. Uh, I am Sarah McLean. I write romance novels and I read romance novels. And I'm Jen Prokop. I'm a romance critic and a shit talker on Twitter. <laughs> a real big shit talker these days, man. You're like, I, uh, I'm, you're. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. We're all trying to deal with it in our own. We're all way. getting through. We're all just getting through. Jen is a Scorpio. It just happens sometimes. <laughs> It's true. I've been actually trying to stay off because it's hard. Twitter's hard it's right hard. now. It's yeah. hard. There's a lot of crazy, aside from just like a lot of like crazy nonsense information out there. Cause, oh, we're still, still in self isolation, just checking in. <laughs> um, yeah. It's day 15 here uh, in New York. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot of, of days. Um, it's a lot of days. And so a lot of people are just tweeting whatever, they're just retweeting like whatever. Whatever nonsense some rando has done has has posted to the internet, like it's facts, and a lot of people are just getting stressed. Like yeah. today, there was a piece in the Times about people who are stress buying chickens, <laughs> like baby chicks, which I think is interesting on a couple of levels. Like one, um, w- do we really think we're going to run out of eggs? Like, is that a thing know. that we're concerned about? Because I. We're here. I'm here, like reporting in from ground zero of the pandemic in America. And I will tell you, um, we have eggs at our corner store. Um, But also, it seems that people have not realized that when you buy a chick, it takes some time before it becomes a chicken. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. It seems like a bad idea to panic by live animals. And I tweeted about this. And right now, Twitter... There, I've I've made like panic buying live animals Twitter a little upset I think. <laughs> well, I I want them to rethink it. <laughs> Can I tell you like one of I I've had a I don't really do I mean we have cats and I'm down with that but like barnyard animals are not my jam. No, but well, why would you do that? We sure. live in a city, it's fine. Uh, yes, but at the Museum of Science and Industry, which is in my neighborhood, one of my favorite exhibits is, and I don't know how they do this, although I now have a friend who works there, and maybe I need to call her and get her, like, this information. I've always been curious. They have um, incubators, and every morning they put out, like, the eggs that are going to hatch that day. And somehow they know, because they're, like, written on the egg. Like, you can see, like, it would be, yeah, like, yeah, 31 yeah. or whatever, and that would be March, the March 31st sure. eggs. And then you can just stand there and watch these chicks, like, Amazing. work their way out of this. And it is 
I could watch it all day. Is it really and actually, cool? it is. My son never had the patience for it. It was right next to the train room, and I always felt like it screwed me over because I could watch those all day. But <laughs> I did when this happened. Found myself really thinking, like, but but what about the chicks? Like, what what are they gonna do? I think they're probably fine. In fact, they're probably happier. They're not being stared at, but by, by a bunch of like weirdo children a bunch of (laughs) chicagoans who are like what's going on here i mean i have to say we took uh my daughter to the museum of natural history to the butterfly exhibit which happens every year um in new york city in like the february march april months um and they get chrysalises sent from all over the world to the museum of natural history here and you can watch butterflies hatch from the chrysalis um, and then they ha- they ha- basically turn this this section of the museum into like a butterfly room, and these amazing like huge beautiful butterflies from all over the world are living inside this like rainforesty feeling like it's very hot and humid in there, lots of big flowers and plants, and it's truly one of the coolest things I've ever seen, like watching a butterfly come out of a cocoon. Yeah, that's awesome. Really cool. And I had never seen it until this year. And I mean, it it's cool watching things hatch and like it's yeah. nature's cool. I mean, I like to look at it under glass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to circle back to don't panic by, I don't want those chickens in my backyard or on my no, porch. Also, I don't know. If you live in a city and you are panic buying chicks, you should know the chickens are kind of dirty and they attract rats and you're not going to like what happens when you get rats in your yard and you live in a city. Ugh. Because uh, they're going to come because they exist. There's like... <laughs> The whole yes. thing. Anyway, I'm very concerned about this. And I feel like, you know, I do it's I have sort of mixed feelings because at the same time, I'm really I feel like the silverest lining of this whole thing is that like the New York New York City has run out of adoptable dogs and cats. And that's really great. Like that's ha- like that's awesome. And now actually probably is a pretty good time to get a puppy. Speaking as somebody who has a one year old dog that is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it gives you something to do every day. I guess you have time to train your puppy, which I did not have to have time to do, which is why I have a terrible dog now. Um, Well, can I tell you one other really funny thing, and we'll put it in show notes, is have you seen these videos of sports announcers instead, like, calling, like... Like one no, guy, no, it's what? like he he puts down two bowls of foods for his dogs, and then like calls it like it's a sports match. <laughs> and and the, the same guy like gets out and does something on the street. He calls pigeon dressage, where he like <laughs> is filming a group of pigeons and like sort of like. You can tell he's been preparing for this for a long time. He's got two standard legs and and all of his toes. So vastly unlike most of the crackhead pigeons you see around these parts, and you can see how keen he is to disassociate himself from the rest, but occasionally blending in momentarily as they feast on is it rice seed probably vomit what comes up must go down disgusting it is honestly it's great another american guy um if you send him videos of your cats fighting will like call the cat fight <laughs> <laughs> like a boxing match that yes awesome <laughs> and it is oh. really funny and i keep hoping i'll catch my cats fighting so i can have their fight called man it is bringing out the very best and the very worst 
of the internet and also people. I really believe that. Uh, There is some really... Some people are doing some really, really cool things, and some people are doing some really, really terrible things. So, you know. Hey, speaking of a cool thing I'm doing, yeah. I'm interviewing YA authors on TikTok. Oh, yeah, you are. I'm going to post that. Uh, we'll post that in show notes, too, and I'll be putting it on my Twitter. I've had, like, three or four people so far, but the whole idea is just, like, if you have kids or if you're a teacher or a librarian, Please share them. They're like TikTok videos can only be a minute long. And so it's they're really quick. It's like four little interviews with each author. And mm-hmm. it's really fun. And I'm just like, let's get kids reading. I totally agree. And I mean, whatever. I've I wish there was more. I wish there was more for writers to be able to do right now. Like I wish there was a way that I could help people. Um, you know, writers are much less exciting than musicians or actors or, uh, whatever, but, uh, I'm super excited about your TikTok project and some of my friends have done it and that makes me happy and some of them haven't yet. And I'm going to yell at them. Sophie Jordan. People are in a (laughs) pandemic. And so I can understand why. But I saw that Zoraida Cordova did it and you said Ali Carter's came in and. So thank you to you guys. Gia Krebs, I think. And then the first one was, oh, Nisha Sharma. Nisha. Yeah. She was my test case. Yeah. yeah. It was great. Um, well, all of that said, we hope you're doing well, world. Um, we were really, we, there was such a great response to last week's episode about healthcare workers and, um, you know, please keep thanking healthcare workers who are really yeah. doing the business. Yeah. And not like the good business, the like sad, you know, hard, hard business. Um, but let's get to it because you know who else is doing <laughs> the doing the business? <laughs> oh man, I love this book so much. So was it both was it a mutual pick? What is this book? Who picked this book? I think we definitely were like, let's do Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Mm-hmm. And I think we, I think you were like, nobody's baby but mine. And I was like, yes. Now I love Heaven, Texas. Mm-hmm. I love that wackadoodle one at the fucking circus. Mm-hmm. And I was funny because I've been rereading today the one about the lazy golfer, which I'm all like, <laughs> what are titles? Lady Be Good, I think is that one. Lady Be Good and Heaven, Texas are related. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Everybody, Bobby, Bobby Tom, which is Bobby he's the, Tom. <laughs> Seriously, he's, it's so amazing to me. Like, there are so many things about Susan Elizabeth Phillips that blow my mind. But <laughs> one of the ones that is probably more pedestrian than anything else is the fact that she can name her characters things like Bobby Tom and oh, yeah. Sugar Beth. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, sexy. Here for. <laughs> so I think you you just said this one first, and I was nobody's like, yes. baby but mine is my first Susan Elizabeth Phillips <gasps> book. Really? Okay. Um, after which I immediately read every Susan Elizabeth Phillips book. So you didn't read these when it came out. I did. I mean, I I've I read this a long time ago, but I don't. Okay. But I, it was my first, like I, I I was in college again. I thought this was earlier than it was. So I was in college. I would have been in college when it came out. 1997. Is that what we decided? Yeah. I looked, 
I'm sure I read this when it came out, like for yeah. sure. I don't know if I've told the whole story about this, but I went to Smith and um, at Smith in our in our house at Smith, in our dorm at Smith. Um, so the rules for li- for Smith are different. Like going to college at Smith is like going to college and like on like another planet. Mo- if you haven't <laughs> been to Smith, it always like my husband thinks this is like every piece of the Smith experience is just bonkers. And one of the things that, ha- so at Smith, there are things, nobody lives in dorms. You live in houses. Every house has its own kitchen um, with uh, its own kitchen staff, which was amazing. And you have to live on campus all four years. If you don't, like you have to get special dispensation from the college not to live on campus. Interesting. And every house is divided into quarters. So it's, you know, f- first year sophomores, juniors, and seniors. Um, and so there's one quarter of each class in your house. And when you come in as a first year, um, in very, uh, most people never move houses. They like start at the house that they live in their whole time. So when you meet, when you see Smithies in the wild later in life, invariably the first question that we ask each other is what house did you live in? Because like, that's the connection, the connective tissue. We don't have we don't have sororities. Everything is a sorority at Smith. Um, I lived in Lamont House. Shout out to Lamonsters everywhere. Um, and Lamont had a, a... And then what happens is when you're a senior at Smith um, and you're leaving, you have lived in the same... Often you have lived in the same house all four years. And so all your stuff, like if you think about it, you've basically lived in an apartment for four years. And so your stuff has just stayed in the house over the summer and, you know, moved from room to room. But I lived in the same room for two years. So, um, like my, like, so you amass stuff the way you do in life and, um, it never goes home to your parents' house. It stays in storage until you graduate. And then, um, so when you graduate at the seniors in every house have what's called a senior banquet and at that banquet, they will quote on like all their junk Mm -hmm. (laughs) to to other, to like the younger women in the house. So you, you know, so one, and one of the things that had been willed down from generation to generation in this house was a romance novel collection. Um, and nice. I inherited it from a senior when I was a sophomore because I had been basically like taking books out of this romance collection for a year or two. And she willed it to me and I kept it in my room um, junior year and senior year. And I add and, and it came with um, its own bookshelf and I added a second bookshelf to it. And so people would just would come and they would take books out of take you know, quote, take them out of the collection. And then when they had romance novels, they would add them back in. And so all these books had these like magnificent marginalia in them. And it was awesome. Like it was so cool. And the marginalia was of course like super feminist. And um, I willed it on to my friend Mara, who willed, who I'm told willed it on to a sophomore when she graduated, and then we lost touch with it. And now the Lamont House romance novel collection is disappeared. We don't know what happened to it in the ensuing 20 years. But all of this is to say that, one, I'm very sad that the Lamont House collection is gone, and two, um, that nobody's baby but mine had to have been in that collection. That would have been where I would have found it. Somebody would have either put it there or I would have bought it and put it there. Um, but all of that is to say that Susan uh, Elizabeth Phillips, like, this was my first taste of her, and I think it really changed the game for me. Like, it made me realize 
one, um, that single title contemporaries could exist. Mm, and like, yeah, they were not, they didn't have to be like, like Judith McNaught style contemporaries. Like they could be funny. Like this might be the first rom-com I'd ever read. Yes. Now, I this was not my first Susan Elizabeth Phillips. I had definitely, I was waiting for this one. So I just looked. This would have been, um, I would have still been in Texas for Teach for America. We moved to California later that summer. And I definitely was still, I didn't read as much when I did TFA because obviously I was <laughs> completely overwhelmed all the time. But I had read Heaven, Texas, which came out before for sure, right? And the first Chicago Star series books. So when this came out, I was like, this was like, these were the years where like I was really, she was on my radar. I have no idea how we found out books were coming out before Amazon or like no, me neither. due dates. I don't know if I like ran, you know, was at the Barnes and Noble and was like, oh, or what? But this was definitely a book that I read when it came out and was super excited and was Oh, God, those were good years. <laughs> I mean, but here's the thing. Like, it's so funny. It's so funny. And Susan oh, is so funny. Her writing is just, top, like, top-notch humor, right? Oh, yeah. Um, she The banter, the back and forth between this couple is so cutting and hilarious. Like, mm-hmm. they are, they and they are both entertaining each other and insulting each other all the time. Yes. It's so it, great. They're such a perfect match. Yes. It felt a lot like the kinds of sitcom humor we saw in the late 90s. When I read it this time, I was like, it's like Friends. That sort of like really quick back and forth, the banter. And I think that would have definitely appealed to me for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, it just has that very real sense of like, you know, I've said this, I've said this to you a bunch of times. I've said this to like, I say this about Susan all the time, but like Susan really nails like real people. All of her characters are so authentic. Like her heroes are, and, and still like really larger than life. Like our heroes, like Cal is such a fucking asshole, <laughs> but like, yes, you both hate him and fully understand where he's coming from. Right. Yeah. And Jane too, like she does terrible, a terrible thing. She does a terrible thing. Yeah. I honestly was what was kind of like, this must have been 1987. And then I was like, 1997 no. to write no. this plot. She does a terrible thing. But like, then you're sort of like, but I kind of, un- I kind of get it. Like, and also she's the kind of character who would do this terrible thing and like not entirely see how it was terrible. Like, until somebody was like, you did a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think, um, so why don't we talk a little bit about the plot? Because I think w- if you haven't read Nobody's Baby <laughs> But Mine, it is bananas. Like, it is a bananas premise. But also, I think it's important for us to have a conversation about, like, how when you come up with a premise like this, like, talk about taking the finger. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know what? Here, Here's the thing. You and I talk a lot about 
taking the finger and we talk a lot, at least offline, we've been talking a lot about, I think everyone is, how does contemporary romance move forward? Because do you talk about what's happening now? Do you ignore it, right? Charlotte Stein, we're going to mention on an upcoming interstitial, um, essentially tweeted out, it's okay with me if nobody ever talks about this. Um, I, you know, coronavirus. Right. I speculated that maybe it will just, all the books will be kind of post-coronavirus, right? Like it has happened, um, but not like living through it. But one thing I really think might happen is that we will just get the return to contemporaries like this that exist in a kind of contemporary universe, right? Where everything's just really supercharged, but it's it's there's not real the real tethers to to like reality are about family and not necessarily about like job or right like the the things that in this book are like just bananas and you're like okay great sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think this is structurally really interesting because I think one of the challenges with contemporaries is, and I see this, I see this push-pull, especially now. Like, so now you've got the sort of largely indie world of contemporaries where Mm -hmm. the stories are sort of out of time. Like, the mafia contemporaries that, like, that are happening, like, there's just, like, bananas stuff going on all the time or like the taboo contemporaries where everything's kind of time slipped versus the what are largely the traditional contemporaries that feel like they are placed down in society now and i think that the what's really interesting is this push pull that you see with a lot of authors who you can kind of tell are trying to figure out how to tell a story and include like conflict and challenge and like tell a kind of a compulsive compelling story but struggling with this idea of doing it in real life yep so you we're starting that's where we start to see the challenges around like well can an alpha really exist in a contemporary romance novel right now or are they just Mm -hmm. like impossible to write in contemporaries like must they all be cinnamon rolls like these kind of big questions about archetypes and how we do it while we're writing a world that is struggling with archetypes. But I would also add, so you have that, you have those big overarching character questions, but I would also argue that you have a big, a big setting question. And the way that often plays out is, do I talk about technology that exists now or am I dating my book Mm -hmm. by doing that, right? Like, so I can sort of mention texting, but if I mention apps, if I mention, you know, I mean, so I think it's, it's contemporary is really being pushed and pulled on both ends. Like, right. What are the kinds of stories we can tell? And then how do we place them down into the world without them being out of date the minute they get published? Absolutely. And I think authors are making two different choices with this, right? On the one hand, some of them are doing this kind of like, well, we don't want to date the book thing, Mm -hmm. which is limiting some of the stories or like, or making some of the stories challenging, right? Mm -hmm. And some of them are saying like, fuck it, I'm just going to write Tinder. Sure. You know, which is going to make, which is its own challenge. I mean, like contemporaries, I've said this a thousand times, but like, I think writing contemporaries is one of the hardest things you can do because you are really struggling with like what, where the book is in the world. But what I want to talk about is this bananas plot, because (laughs) I think, because Susan on a number, so you and I were just before we started recording, admitting that we usually don't read this whole book cover to cover. Oh, yeah. 
I usually start at about 30, 30% in when they get to the mountain. Yes. Yes. Like skip the whole beginning. I skip the beginning. Yeah. Um, and that's because like, for me, the money starts to come in <laughs> right. when they get to the mountains. Right. And it's forced proximity and they're stuck together. Yes. But, um, you know, which now feels like the right kind of book to be reading right now. Um, <laughs> but reading the first 30% of this book this time was a real joy for me. Um, because Susan, what Susan is doing is she's laying out all of this plot that is truly problematic. Oh, but saying to the reader again and again, I know it's problematic and so do you, but this is the story. Yes. And I I, fucking love it. I love it. Yes. Yeah. I think we talk a lot about how we... I think that's exact. I uh, mm, I don't know what to say except I'm just like humming because I'm like here's the thing like this is the story right like imperfect people do imperfect things and I and I feel like sometimes we are so worried about really problematic plots because we're worried it means authors means it I think authors worry it means I'm saying this is okay. And I don't think we for a second think Susan Elizabeth Phillips thinks any of this is okay. No, in fact, she says it. She name checks it again and again in the text. Like, she talks about... So, okay, for people who haven't read the book, why don't we do the (laughs) plot? You go. All right, so it starts off with um, Cal Bonner is a 36-year-old quarterback for the Chicago Stars. He's aging out of the NFL but refuses to admit it. He is really... He just wants to stay a young man. And one of the ways he does this is by dating young women. He's never seen on the arms of a woman who is not 20 or 22. And which not, (laughs) I was that age when I read it, but I was still like, now I'm like, oh, buddy. Um, And so his friends, it's his, his birthday. They know he's real sad and depressed about something. They decide that they're going to get him a woman, like a hooker, basically, right? A, A sex worker, excuse me. But she uses those terms. Yes. And, and also Jane doesn't like them. So what happens is, is but they don't know how to find, like, a classy sex worker, right? Like, they don't know how to do this. So they press into service a local bartender, a woman who um, is pretty much a caricature herself, right? She just wants to, like, she's like, I'm young, I'm a party girl, I want to bang football players. And if I help them find a classy woman for Cal, I can, like, get it with this other guy. And she essentially serves up her next-door neighbor, a physicist, named Jane Darlington, yeah. who really wants desperately to have a child, but is went to college when she was 14 and just, like, doesn't know how to do it. And then, and her reason for agreeing is she was this 180 IQ genius her entire life and was shunned. And so she thinks if she has a baby with somebody really <laughs> stupid... <laughs> That her, the you know, she'll, like, essentially have a normal <laughs> child, uh, some dummy, this dummo, <laughs> like, it's even so out. It's so good. It's so good. I know. And you're like, oh, my God, for a smart woman, this just all seems like a really bad plan, right? Oh, it's so good, though. It's so good. Because she's like, she, and she's saying it to the, to, to, 
um, Janie, no, not Janie, uh, Joni, the the neighbor, yeah. and she's like, "Look, I just I need somebody stupid." And yes. Joni's like, Joni's like, "What?" And then <laughs> and then she's like, she points to the television and is like, "Him, like I need somebody yeah. like that, that Cal Bonner guy, <laughs> basically." And Joni's like, "Oh my god, it just fell in my lap." Like, yes, I can get you him. I can get you him. So here's the part that I think is really interesting. And then we'll, I, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm jumping ahead. So there, she, uh, you know, shows up at this party and she's not really dressed. She's and dressed. His, his teammates yeah, like deliver her to him. Yes. And she is with a just, bow on with a bow. Oh God. On. It's so awkward uh, and terrible. The whole thing, but it doesn't feel sexy. It feels no. like awful, uh, awkward and terrible. And that's, it I think, does. Pa- again, I, we're going to talk about this. I hope later, but like, that's part of why the book works so well. Like Susan never makes it sexy. Well, here's the other reason it works so well. So she, it's, here's the really unforgivable thing is she tampers with the condom mm-hmm. and, and they have sex, and it really does feel at that moment unforgivable, truly. She does not get pregnant. It, it, two months later, she realizes she's not pregnant, and she essentially tracks him down again for, like, another go. And then it's consensual on his part, and he just, like, goes in without a condom and sort of can't believe it. And I will say I think it's incredibly smart of her to play it like this because— this really unforgivable thing, had she really become pregnant from the tampered condom, I think it would have, I, I don't think I would have kept reading. Yeah. I think it, yeah, I don't, right? It's interesting. I mean, I would have kept reading, I, but I know right, that I, I would, yeah, it's interesting because I noticed that this read, right? Yes. It's like that the second time he, it's consensual bear, right? Yes. Right. But it's interesting because I don't, I have never recalled it like that. Oh no, me neither. I was I have like, always oh. recalled it as tampered condom, yes. stolen baby. Yes. And it never bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> and like this is one of those scenarios where like you have to name the the problem and then like also just acknowledge that like yeah. it didn't like it didn't bother me except in the sense that it did of course bother me. Like Jane does a terrible thing, and I've always known that. Like, I've always, from the first second I read this book, known that Jane made a horrible, horrible decision and trapped Cal into this terrible situation. And no, at no point does Susan shy away from it. And it's one of those moments, it reminded me this time of, it evoked for me um, that Joanna Lindsay, uh, Prisoner of My Desire, because, you know, at the, we, which we talked about with Joanna Shoup uh, on, a, on a podcast in season one, but that Joanna Lindsay, like the heroine rapes the hero and he's so angry. And in this book, Cal is so angry. I understand her reasoning, and so therefore it, like, didn't bother me, but I would say the fact that Cal knows that second time is when she gets pregnant and that that was his part of it, too. I feel like yeah. the, it's we see why he forgives her, right, I guess is what I'd eventually. say. Eventually. Eventually, right. Oh, yeah. But Jen, like, she's in cold storage. Oh, God, yes. And she deserves to be. It's yeah. terrible. And in fact... 
when he confronts her, one of the things I liked about her, though, is when he confronts her and he is furious and we are really like, oh, my God. And she is just like kind of stuck in like and she this is when she actually says the words in the title. Right. It's nobody's baby but mine. And she like actually stops herself and is like, yeah, actually, that's not true. And yep. it's a, a really important moment because we also see she did something terrible, but she's not lying to herself about it either. Right. Oh yeah. And and I think that's why it works. I mean, there's so much about it that (laughs) it's so deft, like for all the times that I've talked about this book publicly and on panels and with readers about how bananas the plot is and how, and I always joke like, Oh, it's fine. It's fine. But like the reality is, is that this is so deftly written. Like, Every second of this, the first 30% of this book are so carefully crafted so that as a reader, you both fully understand these two characters and are fully on the side of both of them and fully, fully against both of them. Like the whole time. It's amazing. It's an amazing feat. It really is. It is really magnificent. Like from a craft perspective, as far as like building characters in a contemporary, I mean, in anything, but especially in a contemporary, working with, like, this kind of really, it's tightrope walking. Yes, and I would also like to point out, like, <laughs> the conflict here is is so rich. It's so dynamic. It is constantly changing and moving. Right. It is slow moving and fast moving at the same time. I mean, there's no, this is not people just sitting around talking about their feelings. No. <laughs> no. So, okay. So what happened? So we, so now we're at a place where Jane is pregnant and Cal has found out and he comes to her. She's teaching a physics class at her, <laughs> at her university. And he walks in and she sees her and she he's like standing, leaning against the wall, like pure alpha sex. And the whole room is like, what the fuck is happening? And he looks at the class and he's like, class Get is out. over. Yes. <laughs> and my panties just fell right off. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's hot. Yeah, it was great. Right? And she's all trying to cover. Like, I was almost done anyway, so we'll just meet again next time. <laughs> so, anyway, I like, really, really perfect. Um, but also, I want to say, he's uh, he's pissed on a number of levels, right? He's pissed that she's having, that she, obviously, like, num- A1 pissed is she stole a baby from me. Right. Two is, like, now he's got to fucking face his mortality, right? Like, in his age, he yes. can't, like, he can't live the life he was living now because he, obviously, he doesn't believe, he, he refers to it as strays. Like, he doesn't believe in stray kids. Yes. And so, like, he's fucked because he has to marry. Then there's, like, a little bit of a, it's a little, like, romance it's reasons. a little bit of ran- sure. romance reasons. He's like, we have to get married. So they get married. So, and then on top of all of this, then he's, but he's really pissed that she thinks he's stupid. <laughs> like, that's really the wor- almost the worst infraction here for Cal. Also, that she's <laughs> old right well, like that's the other he thing thinks, he thinks she's 28 well he's outraged she's that old right and of course she's 34 uh, so he's like tell everybody really you're great. 26 I mean, and she's like okay sure <laughs> so 
anyway, so he's like, we're, we got to get married. And then you're going to have the, we're going to get married. We're not having a bastard. And she's like, what the fuck? What? That's not a thing. And he's like, we're not doing it. And then um, he's like, then you're going to have the baby. And then we're going to get a divorce. And then I'm going to pay, like, I'll pay. I have my financial duties to the child, but you can't have any of my money. And she's like, fuck off. Like, I don't want any of this. And he's like, too bad we're doing it. Or I will keep you in, like, I have enough money, I have more money than God, and I will keep you in legal fees forever and file for full custody of this baby. And I'll get it, because look who I am. And look what you did to me. Yeah. Yeah. And you're both like, wow, what an asshole. And like, oh my God, she really did a terrible thing, and I get it. This is like the opposite of the secret baby plot in the sense that the secret baby plot, we've talked about this, hinges upon us really believing that... The hero wants the heroine more than the baby. Mm-hmm. That it's like the catalyst, right? And in this case, Mm-mm. he's like, I don't want jack shit to do with you, but this is my gonna be my child, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna hold any of this against this child, but you are I don't want it, but I want that baby. And it's really interesting because that is the antithesis really of what we expect from a secret baby outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Emotionally, right? Does that make sense? But it is. But again, it's really definitely done because he doesn't forget Mm -hmm. about her. He's thinking about her all the time in the the lead up to him discovering that she's pregnant. Like, there's still so much romance coded into it. I mean, it's so smart. So then they go off. So then they go to get married. Quickie marriage at City Hall, except, of course, the Chicago Tribune finds out. And then it's everywhere and they have to run. And so they go back to the Carolinas, North Carolina. It's North Carolina, right? Like yes. Western North mm-hmm. Carolina in this in. I don't know if that's the Smoky Mountains or what it is, but it's right. The it's near Asheville. Appalachian Mountains. And they are living like basically he's bought a house that was <laughs> owned by a televangelist and is hideous inside. Like real cheese ball over the top, you know, just yeah. terrible. And he introduces her to his family, and he makes her fake being in love with him. He also makes her fake being terrible to them, right? Remember this part where he's like, you you have to be awful. Don't make them like you. Yeah. They've, they've had a, a tragedy in the family. His brother's wife and child died in a car accident, and he's like, I don't want them to like you. I don't want them to be close to you. When you leave, I want them to f- not feel this way. Yes. And it's it's fascinating because, of course, this plays right into all she's ever wanted is to be part of a family. Right, because her relationship, her mother died, her father was terrible. And so it's like, again, here's another, like, really, we're digging even deeper into this conflict where the one thing she desperately wanted was a family. This baby of her own is going to be her way of doing it. And here is Cal's, like, shiny, amazing, what seems family, and she can't be a part of it. And they're nice people. And she hates it. I think we have to talk about grandma, too, who gets oh, it. Oh, yeah. He, this is another grandma, right, who it's like a Lord of Scoundrels-style grandma mm-hmm. who, like, smokes and drinks and sits on her porch with a shotgun. Yeah. And, like, and also gets it instantly. Like, when yeah. they're alone, that fir- in the first meeting, grandma looks at Jane and says, how old, uh, yeah. how old are you? <laughs> how old did he tell you? Like, how old did he he tell you to tell us you were? Yes. 
you know. And she says, I've never, I don't know why he's so committed. Like, why is he so invested in being young? I mean, she, like, recognizes that that's a flaw in him. All of it. And then, uh, and then there's also, I really believe that the relationship between Cal's parents is really a perfect secondary relationship in this. Yeah, I really, I really want to talk about that too. And maybe, and so basically after the, after the grandchild and, and daughter-in-law died, there's this fault lines are really sort of uncovered in the parents' marriage. And that comes into play in the second half in a really interesting way. Um, but really what we're seeing is like this battle of the titans between Jane and Cal, who she realizes like, hey, maybe I'm not a pushover. And he, you know, there's this part where he talks about like he's a yeller. He just, that's how he communicates. He can't help it. And she is the only woman who's ever really like, fought him back right who's like essentially Mm -hmm. run run right into the tackle and that is like this really the part about this relationship that develops and one of my like a lot of my favorite scenes are ones where they are essentially like yelling at each other and in one when he figures out how old she really is is the same time the same time she figures out that he like graduated summa cum laude from the university of michigan with a biology degree and they are so pissed at each other they actually have like a literal knock them down drag them out fight on like grandma's front lawn (laughs) (laughs) and but you know what like what's amazing is in for many authors that would be like the end of it Uh but instead like that's just the beginning right we get a scene where she like uh, this is the one I always remember from the books. Takes all the marshmallows out of his Lucky Charms. Oh, yeah, he's a, she's a serial killer, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's so oh, smart. It's stupid there's a scene where awesome. she locks him out of the house and he has to break back in. Ugh. I mean, and, and so that's it. Like it's and that's the part too. Like when we talk about taking the finger, right? Like there are ways in which she really leans so hard into what we're seeing. Isn't like. It's going to continue to escalate, but in a way where we're both seeing them, like, really come into their own as, like, people and lovers, right? Yeah. It's brilliant. It's so, so good. It's so well done. And then on top of it, so the first two times that they have sex, the two... So, first of all, I want to (laughs) say, Susan Elizabeth Phillips is... One of the only, possibly the only romance novelist who I think can write bad sex (laughs) and like, and like just writes it like this sex is bad. Yeah. She has another book called Mr. Shit. I can't remember. Call Me Irresistible, I think is the one that I'm thinking of. Um, But we'll confirm the title and put it in show notes. But the, the premise is that the heroine... Uh, the, the, there's been like a, a broke, uh, somebody has been left at the, the hero's been left at the altar and the, um, heroine's best friend has run from the marriage and he is legendary. He's like known as like the most legendary lover in the world. Like everyone knows that he's like, he's just, he, this is like one of his claims to fame. Like he's fantastic <laughs> and they fuck and she's like, this yeah. is fine. Like it's, and it feels fine on the page. And you're like, I don't, 
I don't, and I, as a romance writer, like, this is a real struggle. Like, writing great sex is really hard to do, but writing mediocre or bad sex is, like, even harder. Like, intentionally mediocre or bad sex is harder. And these, so the first two times that they have sex, they have terrible sex. Um, like, it's just not, like, it's fast and, un, like, kind of, at first it's a little painful. Like, there are orgasms involved, but they're not even, like, great orgasms. They're just orgasms. Like, it's all very, like, clinical. And then, and Jane is dressed for both of those accounts. Mm-hmm. And then she's, ba- then it's, like, a whole thing. Like, when they get up there to the mountains and they start to sort of unlock, she refuses, like, he still has never seen her naked, and, like, her nakedness yeah. is, like, a big piece of the puzzle. And then it's almost like I don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't read it because it's really magnificent. But the the moment he finally <laughs> sees her naked... <laughs> Oh my God. Is one of the greatest laughs I have ever had while reading a yes. romance novel. While reading For anything. Sure. Truly. Yeah. Like it's a it's a great big belly laugh of a moment and it still gets me even though now I know it's coming. Well, and I've been so long since I read it, I completely forgotten and I was like, oh, but it's so so good and then the moment and it's so embarrassing and funny and like it all but then tender it all feels that way and then and then he finally like he goes to her and it's like one of the most like authentic honest romantic moments in the book Mm -hmm. like and it's because it was so horrifying and emotional and embarrassing before yeah yeah it's just, it feels like Susan just has the, she can peak and valley in a way. It's just, you know, there are yeah. some writers, there are, there are writers in every genre who are masters and like, she's just a master at it. Yeah, it really worked for me. And then I would say the other thing about this book that's so pleasing, because remember at the beginning, we talked about how like we both love them both and understand both, but hate them both. Right. So Jane begins the book in cold storage. She's the one who has done something terrible. But Cal is the one who ends up in cold storage at the end. And I got to tell you, mm-hmm. I, I, in rereading this, I was like, you know who created my love and devotion to cold storage? It's Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Here yep. is a woman who knows how to put, who knows how to make a hero suffer, mm-hmm. right? And and so it's really interesting because it's weeks. Like, she basically, you know, we don't want to have to get into kind of spoiler territory, but he really emotionally cannot commit, right? Like, they get it, they get to a good place, right? They kind of get past all of this. But what they haven't really beaten is his, he's really stuck in the present, right? He doesn't want to think about a future because thinking about a future means thinking about leaving football and thinking about what's next. And he hasn't ever figured that out. And so he can't, he just can't let himself do that. And she has been sort of like building these like castles in the air about their like, like this is all going to work out and we're going to be so happy. And what happens is she like fucking takes off in her shitty like Ford mm-hmm. Escort, right? And goes to live with, the, you know, the grandmother. And then Kel's mom has also left her husband. Mm-hmm. And these women are living in a Smith College dorm, essentially. They, they are. And the, but that's, 
scene. Oh my god, I am gonna spoil that scene at night. Yeah, when he yes. comes in to her, like so he finds. Yes. So she goes across over onto the other side of the mountain. Right, she leaves him to the other side of the mountain, and the the women take her in. And then there's that magnificent scene where she's asleep, and he there's a storm outside, and she wakes up, and he's there. And it's very Rune and Josie. And he's there. And, like, she... And he's like, come back with me. And she's like, no. like, And they have a kind of quick conversation. And then his mom is, like, knocking on the door. (laughs) And she's like, do you have a man in there? And Jane is like, yes. And he's like, why the fuck did you tell her? And then the mom is like, do you want him in there? And Jane says, no. No. And it's so heartbreaking because of course she does want him in there but like he's being such an asshole and he's such a dummy and why like and why why is he such a dummy and then the mom is like then you come stay with me you sleep in my bed with me and she goes uh it's really it's you know what it's really it is magnificent here's the other thing so now is maybe a good time to talk about this B plot love story, which it's, I, I love this book, but it's ironic because one of the reasons I, I don't really, I haven't read a new Susan Elizabeth Phillips book in a long time. And one of the reasons I stopped is because, um, the secondary romances essentially started becoming like equal to like the A and the B romances essentially became indistinguishable in later books. And I, I didn't really enjoy enjoy it, right? Like, I I don't know, maybe I'm just a dummy, and I just want, like, I really want the tight focus on, like, the main romantic subplot, and I found myself frustrated by other ones, and so it was really interesting because it's around 50% when Cal, Cal's parents sort of rise, like, bubble up as being, like, okay, we're gonna get their story, and I'd, mm-hmm. so I'd forgotten, and I remember as I was reading, I thought, oh, thank God it's not gonna, like, take over, right? I, I Like, this was yesterday as I was rereading. Thank God this is not going to take over. It's not what I want. But I think there's a couple really brilliant things that happen with this. One is <clears throat> it gives the reader something to focus on while Cal is in cold storage, mm-hmm. right? Because it if you really want it to feel like someone has suffering for you you can't just be like two weeks later, right? And it's two paragraphs later. So it gives the readers, it gives our author and the reader something to do, right, while the time is passing. But also it's this really, it's like if you, if Jane and Kel don't get this straightened out now, this is what's going to happen later, right? So it's like forewarning a potential like bad outcome, and I think it's, and that's the part I also thought was really brilliant, along with um, one of the most heart-wrenching stories Awful. of a man doing someone dirty I have ever read. And I cannot believe I repressed it. I read it again, and it was just as painful. It's devastating. The story behind uh, Cal's parents, and also, so Cal's yes. father is a doctor um, who was in medical school, and his mother sold cookies, like, in oh. the hospital. Um, and he never, he d- basically, like, he denied that he right. knew, knew and was in love with her. Because they weren't that they were married. That they were oh yeah, that they were that, married. That was his baby. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I mean it, it 
It's so heart-wrenching. And she stays with him. And so, like, for me, also, there's this piece of, like, it feels very real because it feels generationally. Like, we've talked before about, like, Mm -hmm. women of of a generation, even, even just one generation above us, like, feeling trapped. Yeah. And not being able to, like, get out of a relationship that is that is so upsetting. Yeah. Um, it's also like, there is something in here about education and like class and like, and all the other, like this book really it's, it's so for a book that is so hilariously funny and so like romantic. It's also like, it's a lot about age. It's a lot about class. It's a lot about Mm -hmm. like how you prejudge people. It's about education. It's about location. Um, like there are so many layers of the way that we judge each other, including people we love. Like, I, I think the other thing I found myself thinking a lot about is I, I think the, this is really a book about the cavalier way in which we talk about like women trapping men with pregnancy, Mm. but not ever really digging into the many ways that women in unhappy marriages are trapped by marriage. Does that make sense? So it's like the whole story about Cal's parents is like she trapped him, right? She was 15 when she got pregnant, 16 Mm -hmm. when she had Cal. He's graduating from high school. She has to stand under the bleachers to go see it because she's basically been kicked out of high school for the thing that they did together. Mm -hmm. And so the whole story is like she trapped him. She was trash and she trapped him. And then she had to like drop her mountain girl persona to like sort of become the doctor's wife. But we see that she she was trapped too. And I don't think that there's a real, I don't know, uncovering, I think of like, what, what is it? What does it mean when we talk about trapping someone into marriage? Like everybody loses. And I, I don't know. It was really poignant. I guess I'd say it really, and it's heartbreaking because it doesn't come up. They never talk about it. And like, I know, you know, my mom doesn't listen to the podcast, so I can say this, but like, I feel like my parents didn't talk about so many of the things that like were deeply embedded in their marriage. And like, maybe there are things I don't talk to my husband about that are deeply embedded in our marriage. I don't know. Like maybe this is just marriage, but like, it feels like, it feels like that, that relationship could easily have just never been healed. Like it could have just lived its whole life with the story of like cookie girl and like standing under the bleachers. And you have this kind of moment of deep relief when they finally acknowledge that skeleton and like can move forward in some way. Well, and that's the part about like the, the cold storage, I think for both Cal, both for, for, um, Lynn, right, which is Cal's mom, and for um, for Jane is, like, the first time a man comes back to apologize, how how quickly they are, like, pri- I don't know, socialized to, to just say, okay, thank you. Like, just saying, thank- just apologizing once is going to be enough for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Lynn, the way Lynn has to essentially, like, force herself to say, it's still not good enough. I've never in our 37 years of marriage said to you, I deserve more, but I do. 
and and Jane as well, right? Like I deserve more, but I I deserve more. And it's that's the part about this. Even though I've made mistakes, right? Even though I did shitty, terrible things, I'm not going to pay for them forever. I still deserve more. It's really powerful. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's fabulous. And then it all, like, she just never gives up. Like, Susan never lets, she never lets up. Like, she, (laughs) every, like, you get to, I don't know, like, 90% of the way through this book, right? Mm -hmm. There's the fight. Like, finally, his dad comes in and is like, young lady, you have to talk to my son. (laughs) And, like, the new quarterback from the Chicago Stars is there for some weird romance reason. (laughs) And, like, grandma has her shotgun. And, like, everyone's there. Like, it's like a nonsense play. It's like a farce. Right? And you're watching all these people, and you think to yourself, like, Cal's going to profess his love, and it's Mm -hmm. finally going to be over. And instead, like, the conversation, like, starts, and he's like, everything about you fucking irritates me. And you're like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) You're doing this wrong. And every woman is like, what the hell is wrong with you? (laughs) Even the other quarterback is like. Oh, I know. He's great, the other quarterback. Yes. Who's younger, but also it's that perfect example of like how it's it reminded me of Cressley, right? Like when we taught when we did Hunger Like No Other and we were like, she's telling the story of the way romance is shifting too. Yeah. Susan Cal is an old school alpha hero who like is feeling feelings for the first time and doesn't like it. Oh, and yeah. what's his name? Tyler? What's his name? Kevin Tucker. Kevin Tucker. Yeah. So Kevin is like a new evolved, like (laughs) cool, like hero who's deeply in touch with his emotions. And is like, (laughs) why don't you understand that ladies like to be treated well? (laughs) You know? And it's awesome to see the two of them together, especially because like, it's so overt. The, the metaphor is so overt. Like, yes, Cal's a dinosaur. He's a dinosaur in the football field. He's a dinosaur as a man. Like, yeah. he has to evolve or he's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And and Jane is, I think, one of my favorite moments in here. I mean, there's so many that are good. It's the part where she she locks him out of the house, right? And she, I mean, we're talking like she dismantles the electronic gate. She locks all of the doors to the house. She fiddles with the alarm. And the way that he gets in is he essentially has to like scale the house and go over the roof and through like the doors on like a bedroom on the second floor. And he's actually like infuriated that she didn't lock them. Like, didn't she think he was good enough to get up there? <laughs> and like open those doors, right? Oh my god, it's so perfect though, right? It like I would never so... think to write that, but it's so oh, perfect. It is so perfect. And it's it like, is that's... such a male oh. shitty thing yes. to think. <laughs> like in the moment. Like <laughs> Yes. I mean, like, look at the many ways in which she tried to keep me from this house, but she didn't do this one thing, so she didn't really mean it. <laughs> And and that's it. Like their entire, and but the thing that she realizes, and then he's like like yelling at her, right? And she stops and thinks, like, I wonder what it was like when he yelled at. He's like these twenty one year old women, and she realizes she stops and she's like, he never would have done that. 
right? And that's when she realizes that he's in love with her too. He just won't admit it and doesn't know it, right? And that's the part where she sees him so much more clearly. He goes down to Texas to see Bobby Tom and is convinced that Bobby Tom is just like putting on the the fiction of being happy because no one could ever be happy if they weren't playing football. And when he comes back and he like says that to her, she's basically like, what the fuck is wrong with this dummy? Like he thinks football is more important than like family. And he, and even Kel's mom is like, he grew up in a happy family. I don't know where this comes from. It is amazing. It is so good. Oh, it's so perfect. And then, like, the grand gesture at the end, (laughs) like, where he's like, I really wanted to win you a football game because that's what football players do. And she's like, what the fuck? (laughs) I know. And then he's like, but I get it. Like, I get that. I get that that's not what you need. Like, yeah. And it's so, like, oh, everything about it is just so good. And it's so cinematic, too. Like, yes. We haven't talked about, like, I got to the farce part where, you know, you sort of feel like you're watching a play in some of the, yeah. in some of the, um, the scenes. But, like, it really does feel like I want to see this. Yeah. I want to see this movie. Like, yes. If somebody said to me, like, what romance novel should absolutely be a movie? Like, it feels like yeah. this one. Like, it's so fun. Yeah. And it's perfect. Yeah. I think this is the thing where, to me, when we talk about, like, rom-coms, right, which is, like, a marketing term now, but actually meant back then, right? Like, you know, in the 90s was prime time for rom-com movies, too, right? Like, the, but this manages to hit all of the romance novel beats without humiliating the heroine, which I think is where a lot of rom-coms now go wrong, Mm -hmm. and really keep a tight focus on the romance while introducing lots of really charming sub, Mm -hmm. like, right, like, sort of second-string characters. But also, like, there's a lot of, like, physical comedy and humor. There's a lot of, right, like, it is, in fact, cinematic. That's a great word for it. I think it's inventive in a way that... Right. Like it really is putting something on page that I, I so was Jennifer loved it. (laughs) Yes. Jennifer on past AMAs, you have said, I don't think rom-coms exist. Yeah. Well, I mean, now they existed (laughs) then. I don't. I mean, this Jenny Cruz. If you are writing rom, if you are out there in the ether listening to us and you are thinking like everybody says publishing wants rom-coms, what do they really mean? Read this book. Read this book. Like, read this book because it, beat for beat, it's just exactly what you want in a rom-com. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, and like heavy on the ROM. Like there's, there's so, it is so, you know, we talk all the time about how romance is hard as a genre. Like one of the, one of the things that enrages me about the level of disdain that the world has for romance as a genre is the complete disregard for the fact that like when you're writing romantic suspense, it has to exist as both (laughs) suspense and romance. Like you have to have a mystery and a romance. When you're writing (laughs) historical romance, it has to be historically, like it has to be historical novel and also romance like this is this is a perfectly balanced this book is also 23 years old (laughs) so right and it is it is spectacular i would say like it is the lord of scoundrels of rom-com like there's 
this and Jenny Cruzy. I know I you say. really like Bet Me too. I do. And for me, I haven't read Bet Me in twenty five years. So yeah. for me, like because for me, this is like the gold standard. Sure. But we're gonna do Bet Me too. Maybe we should do Bet Me next. Yeah. Well, this and, and you know, well, like, Welcome to Temptation and Bet Me are like two of my and I. But I mean, those were two thousand. Welcome to Temptation was two thousand. Bet Me was probably two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah. So this was all in like a really tight, and you know, maybe after nine eleven, it was just harder to to do. I don't know. It's really interesting to consider. Maybe. Well, there was that great moment in uh, at, on Saturday Night Live, the the week that they came back after 9-11. And Lorne Michaels stood there with Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor at the time. And Lorne Michaels said, well, can we, it, can we be funny? And Rudy Giuliani said, why start now? And so, and it's like that. You sort of have this moment yeah. where you're like, you know... I don't know. Like, I don't I don't know if rom-com did exist short of maybe it was just, you know, Susan and Jenny. I mean, it it was also Laura Zygman and. Um, yeah. Right. And then, of course, there was Helen Fielding, like right in that the sort of wake of 9-11 was the rise of the chiclet. It's interesting that you talk about like the can we be funny again thing. Do you remember what was in the onion when they came back online after 9-11? It was like a lot of uh, like a very a set of like very similar types of things. And there's one that is like basically really like bitterly funny, which was like God holding a press conference telling people to stop killing people using his name. (laughs) And I I remember thinking like nothing will ever be funny again. And and it it will be. I know. I mean, I think it's important. Part of me feels really good about doing this this week. Like, I like the fact that it's a forced proximity story. Like, there's some very yes. overt reasons why I think this is a nice choice for this week. Um, but also, I'm really glad we did it because it's really funny. Yeah. Like, it was, I yeah. laughed out loud reading this book today. Yes. And yeah. Today is not a day that is easy to laugh to out laugh. loud on. So I'm, you know, Susan, I've said this to your actual face, and I texted <laughs> you this today, and I don't know if you will ever listen to this podcast, but if you do, just know that, like, this book, I mean, it is, it's one of my very, very favorites, and I'm so grateful for it. Me too. It was really wonderful to read it again. All right. So, well, we talked about doing Bet Me Again, but we'd also talked about no, doing Victoria let's do Doll. Victoria. Let's do Victoria. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember the name. You were like Cunnilingus Gabe. I was like, I don't think that's the title. That's not the title. <laughs> but sure. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Eric's going to be like, what now? Um, oh, woo. It feels like when you Google Victoria Doll Cunnilingus, Cunnilingus Gabe should just populate, but it doesn't. Uh, it's Taking the Heat is the okay. name of it. Um, and it's number three in her Girls' Night Out series, but you don't have to read the others. Um, it is a proper standalone. And um, Victoria, we are going to read and we are going to talk about sex with Victoria as well. Um, because... Uh, and it's going to be a different kind of conversation than we did about Tessa, De- Tessa, not there, Tessa, Tessa, Bailey, Bailey, <laughs> like Tessa, I was like, the queen of dirty Tessas? talk. Yeah, Tessa Bailey. <laughs> and, um, and uh, the, the, but it's about a, a, a dude librarian who really likes to eat ladies out. 
I should say that. That's gross. That's a gross way of saying it. Um, it's about a dude librarian who really likes eating pussy and kicking ass. Eating pussy and kicking ass. His nickname is Cuddling Escapes, Sarah. I think we all get what he likes to do. <laughs> and it's pretty great, but also there's um, there's a really beautiful, like, uh, the heroine writes an advice column in a small town. Um, he's a librarian, and there's a really great bullying subplot, like a school mm. bully subplot. Um, that I really think is beautiful, and I I really like this book. So uh, we're going to do that next. Awesome. Um, otherwise, what else should you know about us? Oh, call us. Call us at 646-450-3766. Um, we are very excited every time you leave us voicemail messages. It's really saying anything, but especially when you tell us about books that blooded you as a romance reader. Yeah. You can get pins and stickers from best friend Kelly. Um, if you just go to our website, you can click on merch and go direct to her store there. Our website is fadedmates.net, but just be aware of things shifting with post offices. So, yeah. and Jordan Denae, which is where all of my t-shirts exist, she is closing the shop until, um, the quarantine slash isolation slash whatever we're calling it today is over because she wants to keep male workers as safe as possible. Hmm. I would just say, everybody, stay safe. Yeah. Stay at home if you can. Wash your hands. Yeah. And be if you are out in the world, be as kind and thoughtful as possible to people who are working on our behalf. And if you see someone being shitty to them, step up and tell that person to buzz off. You can use those exact words. And um, <laughs> also, uh, tip your delivery people. Oh, like an insane amount. Yes, whatever yeah, you can do. they are yeah. out there really taking the brunt of it. So yeah. we love you guys. Stay safe. Keep us posted on the books that you're reading. Tell us if you've read anything that's as funny as Nobody's Baby But Mine because <laughs> we're looking. And have a great week. Hi, Faded Mates fam. My name is Rosalie. And the book that blooded me was Susan Elizabeth Phillips' Natural Born Charmer. Book number seven in her Chicago Stars series, and it came out in 2008. Sarah, I think you'll laugh at this. I was at the JFK airport going home to Chicago and had just finished a book when they announced a three-hour delay. To my dismay, I had nothing to read, so I was roaming and perusing, and I saw a um, mass market paperback with a bright red cover and a headless woman in a flowing dark dress. I just knew from the cover that this book would lift me out of my travel blues. I think it was kismet because although I, it didn't start in Chicago, it ended up in Chicago, and I just didn't know how I had missed this entire genre for 32 years of my life. Um, it has really given me an opportunity to seize great authors and understand women in ways um, I hadn't before. So I really appreciate all the authors who put their hard work out there and to you and Jen, Sarah, um, for talking about it every week. So thank you so much. My Instagram handle is at Rosalie underscore Tran underscore Shrout. And my Twitter handle is at Rosalie underscore Shrout. 
uh, love reading and love you all. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.